me in your Bibles this morning. Our scripture reading will come from the book of Mark as we continue our study from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Mark, chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 35 through 44. We are in the last week of the Lord Jesus' life. It is Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion, and Jesus confronts these religious leaders on their corrupt teaching, their desire for power and prominence, and how they have taken advantage of others financially. Our scripture reading will come from Mark 12, verses 35 through 44. The text reads, And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the Lord, large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the truth of your word. We pray, God, that that truth might transform our minds, that we might not be conformed to the patterns and the teachings of this world. We pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see and understand the great things that your word would have to teach. Grant to us understanding by your spirit, illumine our minds, and help us, Father, to be discerning as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a new book by an individual named Pasolka, Department Chair of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Carolina, which is entitled American Cosmic UFOs, Religion and Technology. And in it, she explores the belief and fascination with UFOs and aliens has grown and how 
It could be evolving into a sizable world religion. 35% of Americans, she writes, believe extraterrestrial beings have visited us in the past, and 26% believe that it is continuing today. And she posits the idea that there are signs that alien belief is poised to become one of the world's ethical religions. Alien beliefs are often propagated such that they implicate the world in wickedness, they call for repentance. Many accounts of alien contacts include calls for an end to war and an increase in peaceful human cooperation. A recent New York Times op-ed used an alien invasion as a model for thinking about climate change. Such things are floating around in our culture and grow as people look to different ways to explain and find truth. It is oftentimes that people find truth in all the strangest places. Sometimes it is simply because they have adopted bad theology. In a book entitled Roadmap to Reconciliation, printed by InterVarsity Press in 2015, the author, Brenda McNeil, writes about how all of the apartheid in South Africa came because of bad theology. The book lays out that the system of apartheid in South Africa, it was sophisticated but oppressive. It's an oppressive structure of racism that reigned for decades, and it was based in large part out of the theological doctrines that were formed at Stellenbosch University back in the 1930s and the 1940s. The Afrikaner nationalism had distorted Christian theology, and it came from the seminary. It has fueled many of the Afrikaners' views, their beliefs, that they were God's chosen people. And they saw themselves as theologically, biologically, I should say, superior to other races. And so they called for segregation of society, and they did that. And the doctrines gave that of the Afrikaners the justification for many, many crimes against those of their countrymen. 3.5 million black Indian biracial people were removed from their homes in what was the largest mass removal in modern history. And it continued on in South Africa where the government segregated education, they segregated medical care, they segregated beaches, other public services, provided those who were non-Afrikaners, significantly inferior services, all because of bad theology. False teaching, false beliefs, bad theology can have terrible consequences. The importance of what we believe doctrinally, the importance of what we believe theologically is extremely important. That is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, he writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses. And he writes on, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Right thinking leads to right living, and vice versa. Corrupt beliefs lead to corrupt living. And it was the corrupt, false 
teaching that Jesus here confronts because the Pharisees and the scribes had continued to propagate a system of religion that were leading the Jewish people down the broad path to destruction. They were leading the people into eternal condemnation because of their bad and erroneous theology. In the context here, as I mentioned, this is Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion. And the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes, all representatives of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, composed of 70 plus one more, the high priest, had continued to come at Jesus in the public square on this day. Jesus was ministering in the temple square. Among all of the people, he had been preaching and teaching, and they had come at him with wave after wave, trying to discredit him, trying to cause him to lose credibility before the people so that they could seek to arrest him so that Rome possibly could come and arrest him so that they could eventually kill Jesus. But each time Jesus, through these questions, as we've seen in the beginning chapter of Mark 12, he answers their questions with such profundity he leaves them gaping and speechless. In fact, after verse 434, it says, After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Because each time it would be touche, touche, touche. He would answer them in such a way that they would just be left speechless. There was no one who could confront Jesus and win they were the ones who lost credibility. They were the ones who began to feel as if the crowd were against them, I'm sure, as the people, it says, enjoyed listening to Jesus. Now, at this juncture, after a series of questions by the religious leaders, Jesus turns, and it is his turn. He will ask them a question. And he will then give his scathing indictment against their false and corrupt theology against their system that had been leading the Jewish people down to the road of destruction. And here we see three characteristics of corrupt teachers and corrupt teaching. The first characteristic that we'll be looking at is that corrupt teachers have and propagate corrupt teaching. Verse 35. What Jesus says here, he begins to say, he taught in the temple, how is it, that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Now the question at hand is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the foundational question at hand. And the prelude to the text in this passage, the parallel passage in Matthew 22, verse 41 to 42, it says that the Pharisees had gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the parallel passage in Matthew 22. It says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. Now that's the question that's been asked for 2,000 years. Who is Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ has an unparalleled impact upon this world like no other person in history. And the predominant view, though, of Jesus today has been that same view for these thousands of years, and that view is that Jesus was just a man. No one disputes that Jesus existed, really. They don't think that he's some sort of fictional character because there's plenty of evidence to say that Jesus existed. But people 
do not accept the idea that Jesus was a son of God, was God himself. They believed Jesus had a tremendous impact. They believed Jesus was a good man. They believed Jesus was a great prophet. They believed Jesus was a leader, an influencer, and many other things. But they do not accept the fact that Jesus was God. That is the same idea behind what the Jews believed. They believed that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, would be a mere man. The, the Jews held this idea that a Messiah was going to come. Definitely, there was going to be a Messiah. He would be a man. He would be a powerful man. He would be an influential man. The view that the Messiah and that Messiah would come was accepted but he would be a person who would come and establish an earthly kingdom who would overthrow rome who would conquer their enemies who would rule and reign on the earth and israel as a nation will rise up over their enemies but to them a messiah who would die would be no messiah at all and even the disciples were opposed to this idea they reacted when jesus talked about his own death because that didn't even fit within their understanding of what a Messiah would be. So when Jesus talked about his death with the disciples, it just didn't register with them. And they continued to argue, as we'll see later on too, they continued to argue about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom because they still had this idea that Jesus was going to come and he was going to overthrow Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. And the scribes taught the scribes did teach that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Mark 12, 35, Jesus began to say he taught them in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now that is true. The Messiah was going to be a descendant of David and have the right to the throne. Now how did they decide if they were a descendant of David? They didn't have something like ancestry DNA. What they had was a bunch of scrolls that they kept in the temple. And these scrolls would have all sorts of historical data as to one's lineage. And I believe what, what bothered these religious leaders was that they actually looked it up. That's what I sort of think, because if they were trying to discredit Jesus, all they had to do was go to the temple, look and see whether or not he was going to be the descendant of David, and they would see that, well, if he wasn't, he wasn't going to be the Messiah. But I'm sure they discovered that he was. He was... A descendant of David, because through his parents, Jesus asked them this question. He asked them this question for a particular purpose. Because as I mentioned, the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to be a mere man. But he asked them this question in order that they might come to an understanding that Jesus was not just a mere man. Verse 36, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, a reference to God the Father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now this quotation comes from Psalm 110 verse 1. And Psalm 10, 110 was known as a messianic psalm. It was repeated frequently and quoted frequently in the New Testament, quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. It's quoted in, uh, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, the point Jesus is making is this, that David himself calls the Messiah his Lord. 
The Messiah is a descendant of David, and no Near Eastern father would call their merely human son Lord. So, Jesus says, David, verse 37, calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? The only option would be that the Messiah was a man who was a descendant of David, as the scribes correctly taught, and number two, the Messiah was also God, whom David would not only call Lord, but would sit at the right hand of God himself. In other words, Jesus was both God and man. That was the point he was trying to point out to them. Fully human, the Messiah would be, and God. As David called him Lord, the Lord would sit at the right hand of God. The verse could be paraphrased, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand. But the Jewish leaders would never admit to that. They were here put into a corner, and as I mentioned, they taught that the Messiah was a descendant of David and only a man. And since that, they would never accept the idea that some Near Eastern father would call their mere son Lord. They could not rightly divide and understand this passage of Scripture. So what did they do? What did they do with this particular passage? Well, rather than acknowledge that the Messiah was also God and David's Lord, they said, well, this is Number one, maybe not a messianic psalm. They'd say that this psalm refers to Abraham, or some would say this refers to Melchizedek, or they would say that this psalm refers to Judas Maccabeus, who showed up early on at the turn of the about 6 BC, or AD, I should say, and started up the zealots. Or they'd say that David was simply wrong. That's what some would say. That David was simply wrong to call the Messiah Lord since he was David's son. That's what the liberals might say. But to deny that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God, is, that's not uncommon. Because they would never accept Jesus as God. Muslims don't believe that Jesus is God. New Agers don't believe that Jesus is God. Buddhists reject Jesus as God. Mormons reject Jesus as a member of the Trinity. They'll believe, believe he's some sort of divine being. In fact, the world in general rejects Jesus as God. So what the Jews believed was not uncommon, being blinded to the truth. And Jesus, in his grace, points them to the word of God that they might see here. The Messiah was not just the descendant of David in his humanness, but he was also God, to be sitting at the right hand of God, that he was David's Lord as well. Corrupt teachers as these Leaders would be these Pharisees, these scribes, propagated corrupt teaching. Because if you don't accept Jesus as God, well then, there is no salvation. You know, it's interesting. Many times people do not value the truth of the Word of God. Uh, as you know, we've been looking for additional staff, and I happened to be on the phone this past week, one evening, for quite a pap. pap about a, quite a bit of time, I was talking with a pastor who was interested in our position. He was actually a worship leader and be great as a worship leader, but he didn't have some of the other things in terms of teaching. But he was a worship leader that actually was a worship leader over a church that was about uh, over a thousand people. And he was let go because that church of a thousand people, their senior pastor had grown old and he retired and they chose a new one. 
And the new one didn't have any, they didn't choose him because he had any formal Bible degree at all. He had a business degree, but he was a good communicator. He was a good communicator. And believe it or not, as resumes come in and pastors apply or whatever, that's not something that is uncommon to find pastors or others who don't have training or don't have some type of educational background. And it's fraught with problems. It is fraught with problems. For example, in Trish Harrison, Warren writes an article entitled, Who's in Charge of the Christian Blogosphere? She writes about an essay entitled Sinsick by a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas. He explores this notion of authority using a medical analogy. If a medical student, he writes, told his advisor, I'm not into anatomy this year. I'm into relating. And decided to skip anatomy class to focus on people, the medical school would say, who in the world do you think you are, kid? You're going to take anatomy. If you don't like it, that's tough. And he continues on saying, now what that shows is that people believe incompetent physicians can hurt them. Therefore, people expect medical schools to hold their students responsible for the kind of training that is necessary to be competent physicians. On the other hand, few people believe an incompetent minister can damage their salvation. The church has said for millennia, he continues on, that bad teaching is more deadly than bad surgery. The need for formal structures of training, hierarchy, and accountability in medical schools and medical boards is obvious because we don't want our doctors to simply be popular, relatable. We want them to practice medicine correctly and truthfully. We need to be as discerning in whom we trust with care of souls as we are with care of our bodies. So correct doctrine and the continuing exposition of truth from the Bible is paramount, is paramount for the eternal welfare of your own soul. That is what the false teachers of Jesus' day, the corruption of the Jewish leaders, were not faithful in. For they sought to kill the Messiah as he pointed them to the truth in Psalm 110 verse 1. But secondly, not only do corrupt teachers propagate corrupt doctrine, but secondly, corrupt teachers seek prominence and power. Corrupt teachers seek prominence and power. In verse 38, in his teaching, he began to say, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, Jesus here, he warns the people. You can imagine in the public square, in the temple, and there are throngs of people because this is Passover. The city of Jerusalem is just packed with people. And Jesus says, beware of the scribes. That would have been a jaw-dropping comment right there because the people had been taught even in the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the codification of the oral law. And it says this, it is more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes than those of the Torah. 
In other words, huh, you sin if you disobey a scribe even more seriously than you do if you disobeyed the first five books of the Bible. That's how they viewed the scribes. The scribes were viewed as responsible for the preservation of the law, the interpretation of the law, the teaching of the law, the practice of the law. They set themselves apart. They sought recognition. They sought power. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all had their scribes. They were sort of the specialists underneath them. And underneath them, I think there were also specialists called lawyers, as we saw last week. These scribes, though, they had a specialized job to teach the law, to interpret the law, to apply the law. They were the ones who were seen as the legal experts. And they wore these full-length robes, which were in concert with what God had taught. And there were fringes on these robes, and they were called tassels. And these tassels, in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, were to remind them, were to remind them of the commandments of God. For it says in Numbers 15, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. After which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to the Lord. Jesus himself had tassels, Matthew 9.20. But these tassels were meant to remind them of the commandments of God. They were outward symbols. They were outward symbols of inward reminders, and they called attention to God. But these outward symbols became for them something that they used to call attention to themselves as to how holy they were. They loved the respectful greetings at the marketplaces. The titles, such as rabbi or teacher, would be equivalent to our day of Dr. So-and-so or Teacher So-and-so. Because rabbi in that day, it meant a supreme one. It meant excellency, most knowledgeable one, great one. That's what that would mean. Those days, the rabbis themselves wrote about all sorts of protocols. They had protocols for addressing them, protocols for consulting with them, protocols for entertaining them, protocols as to how you were to treat rabbis, how you were to treat scribes, etc., and so on. And if you passed by a rabbi in the marketplace in those days and you didn't greet them with the right protocol, it'd be seen as an affront. Banquets, they loved the seats of honor. They would jockey for the big seats so that they could be sitting in the limelight. They liked to be the center of attention. They would seek to be in those spots. And in the synagogue, as we see here, in the synagogue they would have a raised platform, just like in many churches today, and they'd love to sit on those chief seats. And if that weren't bad enough, they sought, it says in verse 40, to devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. They would take advantage of widows. Widows were to be the ones who were the most cared for because they were the most vulnerable in those societies, along with orphans, but they were to be cared for. And yet, when the rabbis took control, they would milk them for their money. They would take advantage of them, misuse their property or whatever they owned. They were all about the looks. And this was a summary version. This was a summary version. If you look quickly at Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, a couple, 
A couple pages over, Matthew chapter 23. There is a scathing indictment on the same day. This is Wednesday as well. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus launches out with a series of eight woes against, verse 2, 23 verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, verse 3 of 23, Therefore all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And then in verse 13, Each of these woes, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Again, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And what Jesus does after a series of questions from the religious religious leaders, he launches out on a scathing indictment against them, for they were hypocrites of the first order, and he denounces them in public before all of the people, telling the, the crowd all of the things that they would say and not do, or the things that they would do and neglect other things, because they sought the power, they sought the position, and it drove them to that pride of self-righteousness. And you might remember perhaps the most uh, poignant illustration of that might come from the book of Luke. Luke 18, when you have a, a Pharisee who comes in to the temple and he comes into the temple and there is a tax collector who also comes in. And the Pharisee comes into the temple and he prays this. The Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, Pharisee stood and was praying to himself this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, it says in Luke 18, verse 13, standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus condemns them for their self-righteous pride. They saw themselves as righteous and they looked down on others. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, writes about this subject. He says, quote, The sin of moral superiority and self-righteousness is so easy to fall into today when society as a whole is openly committing or condoning such flagrant sins as immorality, easy divorce, a homosexual lifestyle, abortion, drunkenness, drug use, avarice, and other flagrant and scandalous sins. Because we don't commit these sins, we tend to feel morally superior and look with a certain amount of disdain or contempt on those who do. It's not that those sins I've mentioned are not serious sins that are tearing apart the moral fabric of our society. Indeed, they are serious. And I respect those Christian leaders of our day who raise a prophetic voice against them. But the sin we ourselves fall into is the sin of moral self-righteousness and a resultant spirit of contempt towards those who practice those sins. Unquote. In other words, he says, while it is right to speak against sin, it is easy to sin ourselves by looking down upon others because pride forgets that if it were not by the grace of God, 
we would be in the same state. If we do live a morally upright life, it's only because what? God, by his grace, has enabled you to. If we do live a life that is according to the word of God, it is only because of the grace of God in our lives. Because we are all morally bent. We are all sinners. David writes in Psalm 51 verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely from the time my mother conceived me. So we should be grateful to God. Grateful to God for his grace and also extend that grace to others. And the question for you and I is, do you look down with a moral disdain upon sinners, much like perhaps the Pharisees would, with an attitude of self-righteousness simply because maybe you are not caught up in that? Or do you look with God's grace God's love with God's heart of compassion, desiring that they come to know Christ as well. Pharisees wanted power, position, places of prominence, and they looked down upon others with an air of self-righteous pride. Never should we be that way. Corrupt teachers have corrupt teaching. Corrupt teachers have a penchant for seeking prominence and power. And thirdly, corrupt teaching takes financial advantage of others. Corrupt teaching takes financial advantage of others. And here Jesus sits down opposite the treasury, and he observed how people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and here there's a poor widow that comes to put in two small copper coins. Now many of you perhaps are familiar with this particular passage. You've heard sermons on this passage in the past, just as I have, and oftentimes the sermon is about the subject of giving. And at the point that is often relayed is something to the effect of, look at how much this woman has given. She has given sacrificially. She gave out of her poverty, and we should do the same. And this is a common interpretation, one that I even held to for many years. I used to think this time and time again, and I've had to think through this particular subject for a while now. It's actually been a few years since I've heard about some other, perhaps, context in which this would be cast. So let me present to you some of the ideas that I think would be more consistent in the context of this passage. It is rather odd that the Lord would interject a lesson on giving, on sacrificial giving in this particular context. So I want to us to review the context that is here, because context in Bible interpretation, there's a little phrase that says context is king. So the context is this that Jesus here is in the last week of his life. This is Wednesday. And in two days, as I mentioned, Jesus will go to the cross and die for sinners. Yesterday, Tuesday, Jesus has overturned the tables of the money changers and driven out the people who were tuned to make money and turned the place of the, of the temple into a marketplace rather than a place of prayer. And of course, this would have angered all of the religious leaders as well, those who were sellers and those who had uh, interests in making money there. Jesus exits the temple on that Tuesday. He exits the temple area and he sees a fig tree. You might remember that as we've covered that. And that fig tree had leaves but no fruit. And it was symbolic of the entire religious system that looked good on the outside but had no fruit. And Jesus cursed that fig tree earlier. Wednesday, today, as we've seen, representatives of the Sanhedrin will come. 
And Jesus, it says, is teaching and preaching in the temple area. And there are hordes of people that are there. And they attack him publicly. They seek to discredit him. They are uh, arguing with him in public, trying to test him, trying to entrap him, attempting to cause his downfall so they can easily condemn him as a heretic or kill him. And this is what is happening in the temple courtyard. And Jesus then confronts them of their teaching. He gives a scathing indictment of the woes against their hypocrisy, the woes against their corrupt theology, the woes against their corrupt lives that they have been leading because they have been leading people in the path of destruction. Now, it is near the end of the day. It is near the end of the day on Wednesday. The text tells us that Jesus sits down. And for anyone, if you've been preaching and teaching and defending yourself against detractors who have come to accuse you all day long, it has been a tiring day. It would have been an exhausting day. Mark 13, in the context as well, as we look in the next chapter that comes, in the context that follows this, he has a prophecy of judgment. Because one of his disciples says, oh, teacher, Look what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings these are. And Jesus has this prophecy of judgment. Do you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which is torn down. So the context is this. There's a fig tree that he uses as an illustration of the corruption of the false religious system. There's a scathing condemnation against the corrupt scribes and the Pharisees. And then afterwards of this context, there's a prophetic judgment against the temple and its destruction because it had been contorted and used as a marketplace. And here he sits down in the treasury and he observes these people who are giving money into the treasury So many rich, it says in verse 44, were putting in large sums. Here he's sitting in what is known as the court of the women. And the court of the women had these shofar horns. There would be horns that were there, a shofar is a trumpet, and each of these trumpets there would be 13, and each one would be labeled. This one would be labeled, for example, uh, an offering for the bird offering, an offering for the wood offering, an offering for the incense offering, gold offering, etc., free will offering. They were all labeled, and people would take their money, and they would put it in full display into these trumpets, and it would go down into a little chute, I'm assuming, something like that. And the Bible says this, that verse 42 a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. So, the question is, how does this incident that Mark includes here fit into this context of condemnation against the religious system, against the religious leaders, against the temple, which will be brought down in AD 70 in the context of judgment. How does this incident fit? Would Jesus merely put in an incident about giving at this time? I think I'm convinced that it is not. It is an example, in a sense. It is an example of how a corrupt religious system takes advantage of a destitute, poor widow. It is an example of how a corrupt 
teaching how that marketplace and all of the desires of the Sadducees to pull as much money out of the people would take financial advantage of others. Verse 40, Jesus just pointed out in the context that they were devouring widows' houses. And here is an illustration of what happens. The text itself, Mark describes this widow as poor. She put in about a penny's worth, a cent. That is one sixty-fourth of a common day's laborer's wage. Common day's laborer's wage, a wage of a soldier would be one denarii. Two of these little copper coins would be one cent, one sixty-fourth of that. The word that is used for this widow is not Pentecost. There's two words that are used for those who are poor. This one is not Pentecost, which means poor, but this word is ptokos, and it means one who is destitute. It is one who is destitute. This is the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, for the one who sees himself as destitute. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means that one who sees himself as destitute before God, sees his utter helplessness, nothing he can offer to God for his salvation, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. This woman is called Potokos. She is destitute. And the picture that is here, she is so poor, she needs her sustenance by begging. And it pictures one who has their hand out as a beggar and the other covering their own face in shame because she is so poor. That is how destitute this woman is and how this word describes her. What she does, she gives her very last cent. The Bible says all she owned, all she had to live on. Then what she's going to do? She's going to go home and die? That is not the point of this parable. The point of the parable, of this account, is not everyone, sell everything that you have, sell your home, sell your cars, sell your clothes, whatever it is, take a vow of poverty, go home and sit with your family and beg and die. That is not what this is an illustration of. Jesus calls his disciples, verse 43, and he points out the comparison. There is no commentary. There is no commentary by Jesus on this woman's motive on the evaluation of her actions, other than that comparison of what is given compared to others. Others gave out of their excess. She gave everything that she owned. And the context of this entire chapter, before the condemnation of the religious leaders, their system, and of the temple afterwards, she is an illustration of what happens from corrupt teaching who milk people for their money. She is a very, very sad example of a false religious system sucking every last penny out of a destitute woman. In their legalism, they demanded of the people. Jesus points this out to his disciples of what happens when a corrupt religious system continues on and the corrupt theology, what it does to people. Luke 16, 14 tells us the Pharisees were lovers of money and the Sadducees had turned the temple into a business. You know, various parts of the world that I've had the opportunity to travel to, I've been to 
many temples to see, whether it's a Buddhist temple or a Shinto, largest Shinto temple in Japan, or the, or, or the temple, the worship of ancestors. And inevitably, in front of all of these temples, they've got these people who will sell things. They sell pieces of colored paper. What's that? Oh, the people believe that you buy these colored pieces of paper, and what you do, you burn it. Why? So that your ancestors will have, like, money to spend. Or that others will buy fortunes. You know, I had a friend who was showing me around Japan, and you know, he was buying a fortune, and he's buying a fortune for his boss in front of the Shinto temple, and his boss shook out a fortune. And the fortune, he didn't tell his boss, but it was a bad fortune. My friend was a non-believer. Shook out a bad fortune, and so he had to spend a whole bunch of money to continue to shake out a fortune so that it would be good, so his friend and his superstition would not be somehow cursed. And if Jesus were there, if Jesus were there, I think he would say, look at the sacrificial giving of all these idolaters. Would he say that to his disciples? You do the same as this woman. I don't think so. I think he would have a heart that would be broken because this woman gave all that she had to a broken system, a works-based system in which she would be believing that somehow this merits her something before God. They had this sort of idea, this prosperity gospel theology that you give and somehow you will be blessed and if you were poor, that was a curse of God. Many false religious systems and leaders will do that. They unduly focus on money, taking advantage of the weak, taking advantage of the poor, whether it's indulgences from the medieval Roman Catholic Church or the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, the message is the same. You could buy your way into heaven or buy the salvation of others. One of the most successful sellers of indulgences in church history was the Dominican friar whose name was Johann, Johann Tetzel. And in the fall of 1517, Tetzel began selling indulgences in Germany. And what he was doing was he was raising money to help build the Sistine Chapel in St. Peter's Basilica. Historian James Kittleson describes one of his sales pitches. Quote, Do you not hear, he would say, the voices of your dead relatives and others crying out to you and saying, Pity us, pity us. For we are in dire punishment and torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. And you will not. Finally, there was the appeal. Will you not then for a quarter of a florin receive these letters of indulgences through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul safely and securely into the homeland of paradise? A money chest, a supply of blank indulgences, a scale to make certain people's coins were good, and the scribes were already, already sitting in their places. Then came what Tetzel would say, quote, Once a coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. And what people would do, they would give their money so that their past relatives who had died what they believed would spring them out of purgatory into heaven. And they would go on to the next town. That mantra is not uncommon. It's rattled off today by some who say this is seed money. 
This is seed. The phrase goes, have a need, plant a seed. Or sometimes they will actively threaten somebody they don't know. They're being televised to some suggestible TV viewer saying, quote, someone will be watching this ministry on the air who promised a large sum of money to God and you act like you have given it but you did not pay it. You are so close to lying to the Holy Spirit that within days you will be dead unless you pay the price God set. And somebody here is getting the message. You're on the edge of lying to the Holy Ghost. Don't lie to the Holy Ghost. The prophet has spoken, unquote. Others will say, give $10, receive 1000 Give 1000 receive 100000 I know you can multiply, but I want you to see in black and white how tremendous the hundredfold is. Give one house and receive 100 houses, or one house worth 100 times as much. Give one airplane and receive 100 times the value of that airplane. Give one car, and the return will furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, Mark 10, verse 30, is a very good deal, unquote. Those who are corrupt teachers take financial advantage of others because finances are a theme of their ministry. And they use various vices to get people in order to give, give, give. This is not an example of one who is to give and then go home and die. She was so impoverished that they took advantage even of the widows, devouring their houses, taking the most vulnerable and taking advantage of them. Corrupt teachers have corrupt teaching. Corrupt teachers seek prominence and power. Corrupt teachers take financial advantage of others. And Jesus' warning for us is the same at that time. Just as he said, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we too need to be very aware of those things that are corrupt, not true to the word of God, false, that we might destroy the speculations as Paul writes, and that we might take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would give us a heart of discernment and that we, Father, would compare all that we hear as good Bereans to your word. That, Father, we might not adopt many of the things that our world propagates at us, for our world is often our teacher, whether it's the media or the internet or other students or other friends. Lord, what they say, help us, Lord, to compare to your word. May we cling to your word that we might have life, a life that you desire us to live, a life that is full of your favor and blessing. And help us, Father, to love that which is true, to hate that which is evil. In Jesus' name, amen.